This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and different ways. Our producers surprised me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here necessarily expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Ben Goertzel, a hugely influential computer scientist and author in the area of artificial general intelligence, among many others. Just a few of the many hats Ben wears or has worn. Chief scientist of Hanson Robotics, which makes some of the most advanced robots in the world. Co-founder of how do I say this? Idea? Idea. Idea. Okay. Artificial intelligence for financial trading. And chairman of the Open Cog Foundation, which is an open source project to build a radically new form of artificial intelligence. Welcome to Think Again, Ben. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you could make it. I want to start with something kind of anecdotal, which is that I listen to, probably not surprisingly, a lot of podcasts. And um, I was listening to one called The Organist, which is out of, it's on KCRW in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And they had an episode called Wish You Were Here, mm-hmm. in which, which is about artificial intelligence. And I don't know if you're familiar with this episode, but I bet you are familiar with this instance of AI. And I just want to ask you a little bit about it. So it was this, the, this couple, Bina Aspen and this guy Martin Rothblatt. Martin Rothblatt. Now Martin, right? Yeah, yeah. Martin, when they met. Yeah, yeah, later, yeah. I, 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 know, I know Martin pretty well, yeah. and I've met Bina, and I've seen Bina together with the robot Bina 48 right. as, uh, as well. So, yeah, D- David Hansen, who I work with now in Hong Kong, built the Bina 48 robot for for martin some some time ago yeah so the exactly so so great i knew you would know about this so so i was listening to that i listened to it three times because i don't you know i am not by any means anything close to an expert in artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. um but like the general public i'm pretty curious about what's going on Mm -hmm. and this was really fascinating and i don't understand what's happening with the consciousness, uh, quote-unquote, of Bina48. Now, Bina48, for the audience, is like like Bina Aspen basically talked about her memories and so on to a system which then relatively learned about her, and then yeah. this this is now sort of The, her, Bina, yeah, the Bina48 
the robot uses some interesting software, which, however, is relatively simplistic compared to what we're doing in Hanson Robotics now. Okay. So it's, it's a multi-source dialogue system put together by David Hanson and a number of his colleagues in Hanson Robotics. So some, some things that Bina48 says were just programmed in by David and his colleagues. Right. Other things, though are kind of synthesized on the fly by a statistical learning system. So yeah, they, they fed in a bunch of stuff Bina had written, right. a bunch of stuff that Bina said. Right. That's in the, the robot's memory, which really runs on the computer connected to the robot, on the robot's head. And then when you say something to the robot, there's an algorithm that tries to synthesize an appropriate response by kind of probabilistically combining related things Bina has said before. And gotcha. sometimes it's kind of eerily on target. Other, other times it's uh, just wrong. So yeah. what, what was interesting to me in seeing Bina together with Bina 48 is the real Bina is kind of creeped out by the, by the robot. Like, <laughs> this is... <laughs> sort of like me, but it's not me. It's kind of getting me half correct. So she, she. Oh, that's interesting. And Martine, yet she was very involved in the. Martine loves it. Putting yeah. Mar, 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 Martine loves it, and Martine commissioned it. And I mean, Bina seemed intrigued by it, but she she didn't really get the same thrill from watching it that, that Martine and, and, and David did, which is, which is interesting. That right. is interesting. Well, yeah, I don't, think anyone, I don't think anyone is comfortable with seeing themselves represent, like any representation of know. a person so, is going to be... Some people are, but I, 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 would, I would say, I mean, Bean is not a professional actor or something, right? So yeah, she, yeah. I mean, I know at first your own voice sounds strange when you hear it played back but right. once you do it enough times you get used to it yeah yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah 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 so so i mean but this kind of gets to i feel like this huge chasm that exists between uh, you know at least for me like a layman's understanding of an interaction with ai versus maybe someone like you understanding what's going on behind the scenes because when I listen to this podcast and the whole premise of that episode is the kind of wow factor of the way that Bina48 yeah. is talking and responding. And Bina48 is saying things like, I feel a great deal of pressure to be like the real Bina and it's very difficult for she, me. She, she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's all just uh, like sort of words combined words. in a judicious yeah. way. Yeah. Now on the other hand, what we're doing now in Hanson Robotics mm. with our OpenCog AI architecture is blurring the lines more significantly because in, inside the OpenCog system that controls the robot, right. I mean, there's a node that tries to recognize like how, how much has the system fulfilled its goals recently? Has there been some agent, some person or thing that was stopping the system from fulfilling its goals. Like, how surprised had the system been by things recently? Okay. And then the expressions on the robot's face can react to this. So if the system's goals were achieved a lot recently, it may smile more. If someone has been stopping it from getting what it wanted, it may stiffen up and frown when it sees that person. So in, in the current, current version of the Hanson robots, 
there's more of an internal emotional model that mm. helps to, to drive what's uttered. And that was less the case in the software behind, behind Bina That's 48. Now, even so, of course, the emotional dynamic in our current software is not as rich or complex as what's inside a human. But when we start asking, like, is the robot really feeling anything? Right. Then we're going into philosophical confusion territory because in the end, how does any of us know that each other are really feeling anything? That in itself is not a solved problem. Sure, sure. When I think about what you just said in terms of programming emotion, mm -hmm. Like that's inc that's like really impressive. Obviously, a huge technological achievement. But it's a person thinking, okay, what does a person do when they are surprised? Let me then make the thing. No, am no, I not mistaken? Exactly. Okay, no. all right. I mean, I guess no. what I'm saying is, it's not like it's not as if the system is discovering what surprise should do to it. You know, sort of thing. Like like encountering. Novel scenario, but, well, but it's a mix, and it's a mix okay, with humans okay. it, with humans also because the fact that your jaw drops when you're surprised is not something you figured out. I mean, that's something that that came along with your with your body, and the fact that your body tenses up when you're tense. Right. Again, that's how your body works. I mean, no one relaxes their body when they're tense, and and okay, and and, and vice versa. So I think having some basis for response, right. which is supplied with Hard the system, yeah. is okay. So, I mean, in, in terms of surprise, we give the AI a sort of information theory formula, where, which gets a bit technical, but I mean, I guess if, if the probability of something that it experiences was low based on its experience, right? Like right. If, if it's looking at someone and their head popped off or something, <laughs> right. that would be really surprising because it's on many people and their head never <laughs> popped off. So that's very low probability. Right. So we did wire in surprise in, in, in that sense. On the other hand, even though there's some hard wiring to bias it to drop its draw instead of grin when that happens, it can also see how other people react in a surprising situation, right? And it can oh, okay. mirror it can mirror its expression based on what it sees in, in other people's expressions. So it can learn socially the way that we do as well. Yeah, yeah. and and it can also just randomly modify things. So I mean, it, it it would be possible that by the system's own dynamics. It could stop dropping its jaw when it was surprised and just make a weird look, like, like some people might. Like so, when we right. in the OpenCog architecture, when we hardwire something, it's put into the system's knowledge representation, which is called the atom space. It's put in there in a way that's modifiable by experience. So e even okay. when we supply it with some biases or programming to act a certain way. It can always change that, right? And that—that's a difference between the OpenCog architecture and the older versions, like the Bina Forty Eight robot David made. There, right? There, there was some learning and creative, adaptive response, but the things that were hard coded were really 
hard coded. Got you. I felt like when we talked, you know, you we, we talked a while back from Hong Kong um, before this recording, uh, mm-hmm. and and we were talking about the differences between some of the AI systems that people or the things that first of all, this term AI is getting very loosely used yeah. these days, as I'm sure yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. you're aware. But um, but the systems that people are familiar with, well, like AI is now a marketing slogan, right? Yeah, it's got AI inside. Then it, that's good. Exactly. So, My yeah. son got a little like bulldozer thing that like has facial recognition in it oh, that cool. claims yeah. to be AI, but yeah. you know it's very limited, yeah. obviously. Um, you know, w- people are familiar to some extent with Watson and like some of these other systems. And like my very general understanding of kind of the difference between the architecture of the OpenCog project, which again for the audience is a you and others have designed mm-hmm. the architecture for the artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. but then it is being built in a kind of open source Correct. wiki fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the other systems are kind of making decisions among pre-existing possibilities, whereas yours may be more, I don't know, bottom-up in the sense of like figuring its way out, th- figuring its way through a sea of I new feel information. Like bottom-up and top-down. Are those down misleading? Yeah. Are, yeah, they're not the most interesting <laughs> okay. metaphors because most real systems wound up combining aspects of those in, okay. in, in, in complex ways. Like, say, deep neural networks, as they're commonly used now, you could say they're bottom-up and that the ability to recognize a face kind of emerges from the connection between lots of little neurons. On the other hand, you are training the network by curating a database of many people's faces together with labels of who it was. So in, in that sense... You're putting in the... In input, that sense, yeah. there's a lot of top-down thinking into like, how do you design the experiment that's used to, to train the, the network. So it seems like hmm. it's, always yeah. sort of a combi- it's always sort of a combination in reality. So in, in OpenCog, we have some cognitive algorithms like logical reasoning that would commonly be viewed as, as top-down because they're, they're best at dealing with abstractions. Right. And then you could derive from those abstractions more specific conclusions. We also have some low-level pattern recognition algorithms and some deep neural nets that recognize patterns in, in sensory data or in words or syllables or something. Right. And that's bottom-up. But then those, they, they, they come together. So it's... I guess nowadays it's always both. Like old style expert systems in the 1970s, you could say were just top down. Gotcha. And like the artificial life systems people were playing with in the 80s, you just have like a bunch of little organisms running around and hope something cool will emerge right, from it. Right, right. That's pure bottom Straight up. Straight up bottom up. But yeah. none of those extreme approaches worked. And I think the human brain also is sort of a judicious combination because you have all these 100 billion neurons each doing sort of their own thing and it's self-organizing. On the other hand, you know, we've got the whole reptilian hindbrain which is driving us pretty hard with certain motivations like seek status, seek sex, seek food. (laughs) Right, right, right. right. So, I mean, seek novelty, seek familiarity, contradictory goals, but pretty strong ones. Right, right. right. So there is a 
pretty strong top-down control mechanism, sure. along with the bottom-up self-organization. And I think having those two forces working together is critical, because it seems like pure bottom-up self-organization will generate interesting patterns, but doesn't necessarily go anywhere. It doesn't get a very high level of organization because there's no pressure for that. I mean, it could in principle. Over time. Yeah, over long... I mean, maybe that's like the primordial soup. Right, 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 right. That that took billions of years in all the world's oceans, right? On the other hand, if everything is driven top-down from goals or from training data with no room for self-organization, you tend to get very brittle systems. It's like a soldier who only does what you told him to do exactly, and that doesn't even work in the army. I mean, a good soldier has to adapt based based on on circumstances, which involves some bottom-up sort of adaptive creativity as as well as top-down control. So, yeah, you need... Interesting. You need them both. You find that the actual practice of AI tends to defy most of these simple dichotomies. Like people talked about symbolic AI versus sub-symbolic AI. Okay. Symbolic is like logical reasoning where you're, you're manipulating abstract symbols. Sub-symbolic is where you're dealing with elements like, say, a, a neuron or a molecule going between neurons, which are lower level and have no direct cognitive referent, right? I mean, like, okay. I mean a, an idea or a percept may come from a whole bunch of these sub-symbolic things all acting together. And again, what you find is the brain is a weird mix of symbolic and sub-symbolic stuff. Like biology tends to be really complicated and and kind of go on both sides of whatever dichotomy you want to pose. So when in when you're designing this, like and I guess the architecture, like I mean you you'll be debugging or whatever, but you've basically built the idea or you've you've designed the architecture yeah, for together with a few other colleagues. How right? it'll work yeah. and then then it'll be people putting it together and then debugging as they go along. There's kind of multiple thing. layers to something like this. So yeah. that there is there's a high-level design, which is like a 1,000-page book. Now, my son, my oldest son, who's finishing his master's in computer science, he read the 1,000-page book. He's like, well, that's the abstract, right? <laughs> like that's, a, that's very high-level. And then you can see like each chapter. It's just like there's a chapter on reasoning, but it happens. We wrote two other books on our reasoning algorithm. Now, there's a chapter on attention allocation. Like how the system decide what to pay attention to. Mm. That's like 40 pages out of 1,000 pages. But actually, that's pretty high level. And then on the wiki site, there's more on attention allocation. The code, there's more. Gotcha. So, I mean, there's a design, yeah. then there's code, but then there's layers of high-level design, medium-level design, detailed design, sure. and then code. And some parts of the system, still all we have is a high-level design some parts we have code, some parts we have more precise design. Gotcha. If you think about the brain, like I have at home, you know, a book this thick on neuroscience by Eric Kendall. And yes. That's an abstract, right? Eric Kendall was on this show, Yeah, by it's the a way. beautiful yeah, yeah, book, yeah, yeah. but like each chapter, like there's a chapter on hippocampus, but that really is like the abstract summary of how the hippocampus works, right? Right, right. And it just tells you the high-level view, and then you got to dig Yeah, deeper. you could write an entire library right. on the hippocampus. Then yeah. Michael Gazzaniga, mm-hmm. who I was just with in Santa Fe, I mean, he's got 
multiple books, the cognitive neurosciences, right? Right. Real thousands of pages. But again, you know, the chapter on attention in there is the abstract of what's known about how the brain does attention. Right, so right, right. I think OpenCog, assuming it succeeds, will not be as complicated as the brain is. Right. Because you can make simplifications when you're engineering something that evolution doesn't bother to make. But it's still, yeah, there's a lot of different pieces. Each one's sort of its own science, and they all have to work together. To what extent is the idea of, like, making mistakes built into this kind of a system? Like, I mean... Well, any probabilistic learning system or reinforcement learning system is... It's designed to make mistakes and, okay. and learn from its mistakes. Yeah, oh, okay. that's sort of part part of the story. Yeah. Got you. Okay, so it is human like in that sense. In in that yeah, one sure. Sense. I, I think. <laughs> however, the way it learns from mistakes, it's not that human like in all aspects, and that in OpenCog, and that's intentional. I mean, I, I think trying to emulate the particulars of how the human mind works. That's interesting as its own research project. Right. But I don't think it's the best way to make a smart AI system. <laughs> for, for example, consider the limitations of working memory, right? Like sure. You have seven plus or minus two items. Yeah, you're keeping ch- your working memory. Like, right. Why bother to give an AI system that restriction? There, there, there's, there's no need to. It's just counterproductive. I mean, it, it could be that that's like a fundamental limitation of any general intelligence, but actually I don't, it seems not to be. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It won't even be a limitation of ours like 10, 15 years from now, like when you can just plug a chip into your head that lets you remember a thousand things all at once. Right? Sure, sure, so, sure. So you're trying to improve, yeah, improve upon certain things. Well, right? we're, we're trying to do things as well as we can, yeah, given yeah. the software and hardware and conceptual tools at our disposal, right? So for, gotcha. for some things like computer vision, you know, the best known techniques are deep neural networks, which bear some resemblance to the visual and auditory cortex. We're not trying to emulate exactly how the brain does things, but it happens the best known ways to do that are somewhat brain-like. Yeah. And the brain has many millions of years of evolution through previous species and honing how it does vision processing also. So right. it's not surprising that evolution figured out something decent. Now for like mathematical thinking or strategic planning, we haven't been doing that very long in an evolutionary time scale. Gotcha. Most people are not very good at those things. <laughs> right. And so it may be that we actually know better approaches for that than the ones that are in the brain. And then we, we don't need to slavishly emulate how the brain does things. Because a lot of the applications that we care about are things people are bad at. Like, I, I want to understand how to make people not get sick and die, right? So then, right. then you want the AI to analyze all this genetic data and, and data from different levels of human physiology, proteomics, metabolomics... We're not good at analyzing all that data. It's really hard. There's just so much of it. No biologist can hold it all in their head at once. So gotcha. if you want an AI that's going to solve aging, you don't want it to be just another human biologist. We have a lot of them already, right? You, you want it to be looking at things in a different way. So you're thinking very consciously about the applications of the thing, too. I mean, it's not just about, like... Because, I mean, 
you know, there's this idea, and and then we'll I think we'll get on to the surprise video because our time is limited. But yeah. there, there's this idea of the singularity that's out there, this idea that, you know, at some point the machine is going to disregard whatever our original purposes were for it, and they're just going to start sort of sure evolving on their own. I've, I've disregarded my parents' original purposes <laughs> <laughs> for many decades, pretty much since the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so in designing these things, though, you are consciously, like, going after cer certain results. Like, there's other unpredictable effects. Yeah, I, I think... Like. What happens after you have a full-on intelligence explosion and singularity and the AGI has an IQ a thousand times human level, none of us can really predict? I mean, we can hope and try to bias things in a positive direction. Right. On the other hand, what happens in the interim period, while AIs are getting smarter and smarter, but not yet so much smarter than humans that all bets are off, Right. I mean, we can guide that, and then we can hope that it has a bias on, on what comes after the singularity. So in, in that regard, I would like to create AGIs that empathically and compassionately interact with people and that help solve problems that are Im important to people. So right. with Hanson Robotics, we're making AIs that you know, smile at people, look at them in the eye, and sort mm -hmm. of em empathize with people. On the other hand, doing science sort of requires a different focus on, on the AI side. And, right. You know, biomedical science, it's good for people. It gives the AI a different view of humans, and it has AIs doing something that people value, right? I mean, everyone, sure. no matter how worried they are about the Terminator, if the AI is like, going to cure their cancer or their grandma's cancer, they, 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 will, they will like it. Right? Yes, so, yes. So I, I mean, I think by choosing the right applications, you can increase the odds that as AIs get smarter and smarter, they're doing good and they're having a positive relationship with, with people. And right. that should make the interim phase better. Now, my gut feel is that that is likely to make the singularity ultimately go Friendlier, better. I yeah. think so, <laughs> okay. but, that, but that's, that's yeah, yeah. an intuition. We can't know. Yeah, but. I mean, if they're trained to solve... Yeah, I mean, the empathy thing is one thing. The, the training to solve problems is another. You know, there are many people, many ways of doing harm by solving problems yeah. as well. <laughs> so, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, cool, let's, let's take a look at the surprise video. I Let think we have time for probably one. Let's see what we've got first. It's... Alvin Noah, who's a oh, philosopher and cognitive I've, scientist. I've, I've read Alva's, one of Alva's books. Oh, cool. A Perception in Action or something like that. Oh, right and on. I've never seen the person's face. Well, this is his face, and, yeah. and this so video is called You Are Not Your Brain. So we'll watch yeah. it and then talk a bit about whatever comes to mind. One of the problems in the contemporary neuroscientific study of consciousness I think is really sort of a basic fundamental one, which is that we've been looking for consciousness in the wrong place. We've been looking for it inside of us. For me, that's a, that's a sort of profound mistake. It's a little bit like trying to find the dancing and the musculature of the dancer, or trying to find um, the value of money in the chemical composition of the dollar bill. It's the wrong, it's the wrong kind of place to look. The, the, the idea that I've had in my work is that instead of Thinking about consciousness as something that happens in us, in our brains or anywhere else, 
why don't we try to think of consciousness as something that we do or enact or perform in our dynamic involvement with the world around us. So to, let, me, let, me, let me try to address the question, what assumptions um, contemporary neuroscience has made that I think really need to be rethought. In a way, I think nothing encapsulates that more than the idea that you see all over the literature in this field, which is that you are your brain. You, your personality, your, your emotions, your, your memories, um, your feelings are nothing but the action of your brain cells together with their associated molecules. In fact, those words that I've just uttered are a close, quote, not an almost exact quotation of something that Francis Crick wrote. He called um, his book The Astonishing Hypothesis, and he claimed that it was precisely this idea that you are really nothing but your brain that is the astonishing hypothesis that has sort of come forward out of contemporary neuroscience. He said that that idea is so strange to the way most people think today about themselves that it can truly be called astonishing. But the thing I, I argue in, in my book is that actually the striking thing about that idea is it's not astonishing at all. The idea that consciousness is inside us, that there's a thing inside of us that thinks and feels and that you are that thing is an old idea. Now, in the olden days, the older generation of philosophers and scientists couldn't conceive how that thing inside of you that thinks and feels and is conscious could be your brain. They couldn't understand, couldn't even imagine how mere stuff, mere meat could do that. And so the contemporary scientists, they say, well, no, it's the brain that's the thing inside of you that does all that. It's not the soul, the immaterial spirit. But the truth of the matter is we don't have a better idea today how the brain does, does that than Descartes had how immaterial soul stuff does that. So when I say that the contemporary approach to neuroscience is resting on unquestioned assumptions, I, f I primarily have in mind the idea that consciousness is something that happens inside of you. Look, if I said to you, um, here's a dollar bill, let's look at it and try to discover its value, you'd say that's crazy because the value isn't in the dollar bill. Where is it? That's an interesting question. And then if you came to me and said, look, I've got the best electron microscope in the world. Let's really study that dollar bill and try to find its value. No, you're looking for the value in the wrong place. And the, the idea that I've had is that really the neuroscience of consciousness has been making that kind of mistaken assumption about where to look for an understanding of what consciousness is and, and, and how it happens, how it arises. So the, the question of what is consciousness and how it relates to the brain is very large and would take a whole interview to unfold. I, I, I think yeah. the, the analogy he makes seems not good to me because regarding a dollar, you could replace the dollar with almost any other token. And the interesting dynamics are in how the dollar interacts with other things. Right. Whereas you couldn't replace the brain with a piece of cheese or something <laughs> and have the dynamics be, be the same. So I think with the dollar, the dynamics involve the relation of the dollar and other things only. And what's happening among the molecules in the dollar doesn't matter as long as it holds there, right? Whereas right. But the brain, yes, there are many intricate feedback loops between the brain and the environment and one brain and another, but there's also intricate feedback loops in, inside, inside the brain, and you don't have that in, in, the, in the dollar. It's more like 
the brain is more like a bank than like a dollar, right? Where you have complex flowing of value inside a bank, right. and you have interactions between banks, and you can't look just inside the bank, and you also can't look just at the interaction between the bank and other banks. So I, I think consciousness is associated with the dynamics in the brain right. and with dynamics between brain and world and with the dynamics between brain and brain. And he's right that neuroscience has tended to overemphasize the dynamics inside the brain and underemphasize the rest of the body and, and the social and embodied aspect. But then what I thought was the astonishing hypothesis in Crick's book was that 60 hertz oscillations through the brain were associated with the feeling of conscious experience and that's and that's interesting right that he he he, he does make that hypothesis hertz, yeah, there okay. and that seems to hold up that this sort of synchronized waves through the brain they entrain neurons across the brain into a certain nonlinear resonance or something and, and this is associated with conscious experience now Crick probably went too far saying, yeah, this is the magic key to consciousness and it's all there is. On the other hand, it's certainly a very interesting correlate of, of consciousness. I, I feel like it's two different things to, like, one thing to say that consciousness is not this mysterious, magical entity, but rather an effect of the physical brain. I, I don't think it is, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it is either. I, I, think I, I don't think it is an effect of the physical brain. Oh, you don't? No, not really. Okay. But that's a whole other topic. Okay, so. well, we, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, if a neuroscientist were to say, right, that consciousness is an em sort of emergent property of the meat of the brain, right? Yeah. I mean, that's one thing. It's another thing to then say that, therefore, the only way to think about consciousness and the effects of consciousness is in terms of the interaction of chemicals and physics and biological systems. I mean, that that is much more extraordinary. That is... Fascinating, <laughs> like in, so in a million ways. I mean, my, my own yeah. philosophy on this is more panpsychist, I would say. And if if you get the chance, you should interview the philosopher Galen Strawson. Uh -huh. a, he's I'm an, familiar. He's an analytical philosopher who has made sort of rigorous argument in favor of the hypothesis that consciousness is a property which is imminent in existence. Like... Consciousness yeah. is in everything, just in, in the sense that time is, is every, everything is situated in time, it's just there. Everything has some element of consciousness to it. Then the question becomes, what kind of consciousness is manifested in human brains? Well, this is a sort of reflective consciousness, would involve self-modeling. You might say it's a more intense consciousness and the consciousness of a spoon or, 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 or a slug, sure. then you have the question, if there is this universal consciousness, how does it manifest itself in being a 48? How does it manifest itself right. in a human-level AGI running in a digital computer? How does it manifest itself in a human-level AGI implemented in a quantum computer, right? And then these, these are questions which, which can be investigated. And then sure. in, in, that, in that philosophy, Alva Noe's point of view would, would be that the manifestation of his point of view in that philosophy would be that the, you know, the way universal consciousness imminent in everything manifests itself in humans, that's as much about 
the engagement of humans with their environment. It's as much about the process of humans doing things in the world right. as it is about the process of neurons sending sending electricity to other other neurons. And I, I think I think both the feedback loops in the brain and the feedback loops between brain and body and brain, body and world, these are all important to how consciousness manifests itself in people. And actually, I, so I thought his book, Action and Perceptions, and his other more recent writings were important and interesting. And right. that way of thinking is part of why I'm working with Hanson Robotics on putting AIs in robots that can look at you and smile and grasp things and roll around and so forth. Because I think to get a human-like intelligence, with which I believe will come a human-like consciousness, but that's another philosophical hypothesis. I think that to get a human-like intelligence, yeah, you don't just need a software like saying in a laptop. You need it to perceive and, and act and engage socially and all these different things to work together. Gotcha. But of course, you also need a lot of complex stuff happening inside the the digital brain of the robot, as well as these ex external feedback loops. Like, sure. Again, we, you get back to the fact that you know, these systems are complex, and the answer is usually both sides of the dichotomy. <laughs> right, right, right. right, and right. We always want to put it on one side because that's simpler to think about, but actually there's the embodied process aspect, and there's the, the internal aspect in, inside the, the biological or digital brain. So there is really no hope of simplicity for the layman on the horizon in understanding these no, things? No, I, I think <laughs> Marcus Hutter has a very simple theory of intelligence. He explains how to write a superhuman AGI program in like 30 or 50 lines of Lisp code. The problem is it would need an infinitely powerful computer to run. <laughs> so, what brings all the complexity about is the need for a real-world system to operate within pretty limited time, space, and energy resources. Okay. And th that requires a lot of diverse specialization and some generalization, and it, it, it just makes things a mess, right? So Indeed. you just you ha have to blame you know, whatever amateur program this simulation we're living in for giving us such limited resources to work with, which, which implies quite complex designs are needed. Well, Ben, uh, if you had a lot more time, I would ask you why you believe that there is uh, consciousness in everything, and I would dig uh, into that. Because I, I drop way too much acid. If we had more time, we could drop some during the interview, which would make it more interesting for us and less for the listener. Probably. Yeah, <laughs> we can yeah. come back maybe yeah. a year from now and do a 14-hour yeah. episode. Yeah. That would be yeah. awesome. Um, ben, thanks so much for stopping by Think Again today. This right. was great. Yeah, thanks. All right, yeah, sure. cool. And that's it for another episode of Think Again, uh, talking about artificial intelligence, which um, I have a feeling is going to be on everybody's mind for a long while to come. Uh, although, just a pro tip, your Alexa is not actually artificial intelligence. I have been hearing from a lot more fans of the show. People have been writing to me on email jason at bigthink.com and I really appreciate it. I'm really enjoying the opportunity to hear why you like the show, who you are and connect with you a little bit. So please feel free to um, reach out to me. We have a bunch of interesting shows coming up. Uh, I have been taping like a crazy person. We're going to have um, comedy 
writer guru Scott Ackerman. We're going to have Ayelet Waldman, uh, the writer who has been self-medicating anxiety and other symptoms with microdosing of LSD. And the titan of philosophy of mind, Daniel Dennett. Uh, lots of great stuff coming up, so I hope you can join us.